You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Observe the month of Abib, and keep the Passover to Yahweh your God. For in the month of Abib, Yahweh your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh your God, from the flock or the herd, at the place that Yahweh will choose, to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that Yahweh your God is giving you, but at the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that Yahweh your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to Yahweh your God. You shall do no work on it. You shall count seven weeks. Begin to count the seven weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. Then you shall keep the Feast of Weeks to Yahweh your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as Yahweh your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. You shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days, when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your winepress. You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days, You shall keep the feast to Yahweh your God at the place that Yahweh will choose, because Yahweh your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before Yahweh your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. They shall not appear before Yahweh empty-handed, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of Yahweh your God that he has given you. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that Yahweh your God has given you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow.
that you may live and inherit the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of Yahweh your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which Yahweh your God hates. Your big disgrace, kicking your can all over the place, singing We will, we will rock you We will, we will rock you Buddy, you're a young man, hard man, shouting in the street You're gonna take on the world someday You got blood on your face, your big disgrace Waving your banner all over the place We will, we Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 663 of this podcast. Today is Monday, July 17th, 2023, and that was a reading of Deuteronomy 16, which is all about these various holidays and feast days and festivals and remembrances and at the last justice. Justice will be done. You will do justice. You will only do justice. You will not accept bribes. You will not show partiality. God takes that very seriously. And we're going to talk about that more in this episode with a number of current events, items, some various anecdotes, a little bit of backstory about a couple of things we've touched on in recent episodes, previous episodes to this one. So stay tuned for that. And then at the last, I want to talk a bit about intellectuals and in particular, Christian attitudes, Christian reception of intellectuals. Are we favorable towards the life of the mind in our churches, in our Christian lives, or are we contemptuous? Are we anti-intellectual? We'll get into that at the end of this episode. But for now, let's talk more about Deuteronomy 16. We're here. It's now that we get the opportunity. And of course, there will be more chances in the future, but there's no time like the present to consider that God wants the people of Israel to remember when they were brought out of Egypt. This is very, very important. It comes up again and again and again as a reason why certain things are the way that they are. You will do such and such because, remember, you were slaves in Egypt. Remember where you came from. Remember what condition you were in that I brought you out of. And actually, we see this in the New Testament as well. In various of the epistles, there are reminders, brief, I would say gentle, reminders here and there to the recipients of various letters, that such were some of you. Do you not know that no one who practices such things, and there's various lists, will inherit the kingdom of heaven? Such were some of you, which is a sober thought when you realize it's not a foregone conclusion. It wasn't a foregone conclusion, but for the grace of God, 
I would still be a slave. I would still be dead in my sins. I would still be hellbound. I would still be separated from God. But in this case, and I don't want to get too far afield from the context of Deuteronomy 16. In this case, you have people who are being reminded that they and their forefathers, their ancestors were literally slaves, not figuratively, not just in a spiritual sense. Yes, also in a spiritual sense, but in a literal sense, they were slaves. As a people, they were an underclass because they weren't Egyptians, because the Egyptians were afraid of them. And because, oh, by the way, remember the economic conditions in Egypt and in the surrounding lands, the famine, where Joseph was able to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of storing extra food, extra provisions for the seven years of famine during the seven years of plenty. And then people from all around came to Egypt asking to buy grain. And the people of Egypt themselves basically mortgaged everything that they owned and even their own selves, even their own families to Pharaoh until the only ones who still owned private property, who still owned what was theirs, were the priests. That was the setup. That was the catalyst for four centuries plus of slavery and hard bondage and oppression of the worst sort in Egypt. And this is important to think about in our context and even as we survey history and we see at various times and places, peoples fall into a state of oppression or there is tyranny. There is a rather callous way of dispensing with the common folk. And you think during good times, wow, how could people ever be that way? I just don't understand at all. And then hard times come. Bad things happen on the macro. And maybe you look at those historical situations, those biblical situations a little bit differently. Think back to 2020 here in the US and the sheer bloody panic that so many people, maybe half here in the U.S., responded to a fairly benign virus with. And when I say sheer bloody panic, I mean their response to anybody who would tell them what they should do or could do to protect themselves. Whether or not that thing was actually going to protect them so much or it was going to be worth it, you had some people who exploited the crisis and I personally think helped the crisis to happen in the first place. I think there are some people who just exploited it. They didn't mastermind it. They didn't launch it. But I think there are other people, particularly in the Chinese Communist Party and in the radical left here in the US, I think there are some people who created this crisis for that time because they have a schedule to keep because they need a pretext for doing something like what Pharaoh did in Egypt with the famine. Something like that seven years of famine was simulated, artificially grown in a lab, and many people were willing to lose absolutely everything, surrender absolutely everything, all concerns about civil liberties, 
their own and other people's, all concerns about private property, their own and other people's, all concerns about economic interests, their own and other people's, if only they could be told that they would be safe, they would live. In Egypt, a similar thing happened, except it was famine and it was stores of food. Instead of, hey, we'll give you the vaccine, we'll give you the health policy directions and mandates, we'll enforce those mandates on other people in your community. Instead of that, it was food. But the result, I think, was much the same as what we have seen. You see a massive transfer of wealth, and I don't think it's over. I think that the folks who launched this, they had the next and the next and the next thing all lined up. And so they're just proceeding apace. They didn't launch the COVID nonsense without some plan of how they were going to exploit it. But coming back to Deuteronomy 16, here's a happy thought. Even though it was four centuries plus of slavery and hard bondage in Egypt, God was able to deliver his people out of that hard bondage, out of that slavery. God was able to do it with Pharaoh. God is able to do it now with his people. And some people, again, as I've said before many times, over-spiritualize. And when I say over-spiritualize, I don't mean we shouldn't read any kind of a spiritual connotation, but we shouldn't only read a spiritual connotation. Just like when I take some issue with Jordan Peterson, as much as I respect him and admire him, as much as I've appreciated his contributions and his work, as I state, express some reservations, some disagreement with him for over-psychologizing the Bible, my objection is not to seeing psychological implications for what the text tells us, what these narratives are. It's not that I object to there being a psychological interpretation, but it shouldn't only be a psychological interpretation. There are very practical, real events that we're being told about. Real people did these things or had these things happen to them. Real men walked with God. Real people responded either well or poorly to being given warnings from God. And in this case, right here, you have something being shown us about the nature of man and the goodness of God. One, God knows that without some kind of a regular reminder for the people, they will forget and they will go back to the gods of Egypt or the gods of the nations, or they will forget Yahweh, their God, if they are not reminded of how he brought them out of Egypt, for instance, for example. They will forget to do justice if they are not reminded regularly why they should do justice and what justice actually is. They'll start making stuff up or they'll start listening to people who are predatory, who tell them what they want to hear, who do offer bribes, who do show partiality. If the people are not reminded on a regular basis, they will forget, they will go astray, and it will go very badly for them. Now, it won't go badly for God. God's not harmed by their waywardness, their disobedience. He's grieved by it, but he's not harmed by it. They harm themselves. 
If they are wise, they are wise for themselves. If they are foolish, who do they hurt? They hurt themselves. And sure, yeah, the people around them as well. But note here the needfulness of being reminded of what God has done and its practical effects also have practical causes. We need to know that. We need to know that so that when we come to practical problems, we don't shy away because the only interpretations we have are immaterial. When we come to material effects, material problems, yes, we do need to understand how our heart and our mind are engaged on these things. But if we have no consideration for the material, are our hearts and our minds really engaged? James in the New Testament would say no, or he would strongly imply no, at least. And that's about as good. But come back to the end of Deuteronomy 16. Notice the side-by-side of the order to appoint judges and officers in all the towns, according to your tribes, to judge the people with righteous judgment, to not pervert justice by showing partiality or accepting bribes. Notice how that is put right next to the prohibition on planting a Asherah beside the altar of Yahweh, setting up a pillar for the worship of these false gods, these gods of the nations. God says, don't do it. But he says, don't do it right after having said, don't pervert justice. You will do justice and only justice. Justice you will follow and only justice that you may live and inherit the land. And what's interesting is it's not an either or, but it's a completing of the picture, so to speak. You have to affect your understanding of what it's like, what it means to set up the worship of false gods beside the worship of Yahweh God. You have to understand that differently after having just been lectured in a good way, of course, about justice, humanly speaking. In other words, there is a perversion of justice to worship some false god right beside Yahweh God. That's unjust. That is unrighteous, but it's unjust. It's an injustice. So also, you have to understand what it means to do justice, humanly speaking, differently as a consequence of having been told right after that, don't mix in worship of these other gods, these gods of the nations, with your worship of Yahweh. Don't be worshiping Baal and Ashtaroth and Moloch beside Yahweh. Don't do it. Or what is that like? What could you compare it to potentially? It would be like doing justice sometimes in some cases, but for the right amount of money, maybe looking the other way in other cases, or for the right amount of money, showing partiality to a certain party and their cases, and thereby not really doing justice. Show no partiality comes up again and again and again, and not for no reason. Not for no reason is God upset about partiality. But at the same time, there's something of a compare and contrast because he does want partiality shown to him. He does want 
his people to worship only him. They should be infinitely partial towards Yahweh their God in comparison to any of the other gods of the nations. But also too, and just briefly, briefly, and then we'll jump into some additional topics. In our last episode, which was subscriber only, and I would encourage you to reach deep into your pockets for that 99 cents a month. It's not going to break the bank. 99 cents a month, and you can listen to subscriber-only content as it comes out. The previous episode to this one was subscriber-only. It will be available to the general public, subscriber or no, as of August 1st. But in our previous episode, I talked about an article from 1909 that I found online written by John R. Common about Horace Greeley and how much socialism was mixed in at the outset of the Republican Party, at the formation of the Republican Party here in the United States. Quite a bit, as it turns out. Quite a bit of socialism was mixed in, and not for no reason do we notice distinctions between conservatives on the one hand and Republicans on the other hand. Not all conservatives are Republicans. Not all Republicans are conservatives. It's good to know, right? But I talked in that episode also about Deuteronomy 15, this idea of every seven years there being a release of slaves, a release of debts, and every seven years, it doesn't matter if we like this person more than we like that person. It doesn't matter if this person's rich and the other person's poor and odds are high. (laughs) If this person loaned that person money, it's because this person is richer and that person is poorer. And there's lots of talk about rich and poor all throughout the Bible. But instead of socialism, instead of socialism, God's prescription is equal protection of the law, not equality of outcome as the test for whether everyone is equally protected by the law, but equal protection of the law, regardless of of how wealthy you are, how well-connected, how well-liked, how popular. Equal protection of the law, but also equal accountability to the law. If you're rich, well, the laws still apply to you. If you're poor, the laws still apply to you. We don't say there is no law if you're poor because clearly you need a leg up. No, no, there are laws even pertaining to the poor. But you're not sh- you're not showing mercy and compassion actually <laughs> to the rich man or the poor. You know, if you feel really sorry for somebody who is rich, or you feel really grateful because they've created jobs in the community and they deliver a good product and they work so hard and they're so intelligent and well spoken and articulate and clever. That's not a good reason to show partiality. If they've committed a crime, they need to suffer the consequences, but the consequences need to fit the crime. And that should be across the board. And I bet you anything, if it were across the board instead of with so much partiality as it is in our day, if it was across the board, impartial, I think more often we would find that the punishments do fit the crime, but because there is partiality, some are judged with greater strictness because they're disfavored and others are judged with greater lenience and there is social justice for you in a nutshell. God is interested in the society of his people definitely 
But justice is only justice. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. If more of us understood that and applied it to the way we listen to current events and speeches and press conferences, if more of us kept this at the fore of our minds for how we negotiate our political realities, we would do much better. And we would have a blessing in that. I'm convinced. I'm persuaded we would have a blessing and we would have a good testimony and we would have a good conscience. And when I put it that way, what reason is there for us to not? How about let's do? For our next topic, let's pick back up this whole business from Deuteronomy 15 of the release of debts and the release of slaves every seven years. I found an interesting article by Dove Frankel with Taft Law on the history and origins of bankruptcy. Bankruptcy law in the West, in the U.S. in particular, is my interest, but let's read a bit about the history of how bankruptcy laws came to be. Starting from the top, what does bankrupt mean? The word bankrupt comes from the Italian banca rota, meaning broken bench. In Italy, money dealers worked from benches or tables. If a money dealer ran out of money, his bench or table was broken in half and he was out of business. The word had its French equivalent, bencarotte, and subsequently made its way into the English language as both a figure of speech and a literal definition of what happened to the affected person. In ancient Greek civilization, the idea of bankruptcy did not exist. If one person owed money to another and lacked sufficient means to pay, the indebted man, his wife and family, if he had one, were put into debt slavery until the debt had been worked off. Often, such debt slavery could last a lifetime. In biblical times, according to the Old Testament, or Torah, debts were forgiven every seven years. As soon as the Jews settled in Israel, they began to count seven-year cycles. Every cycle would culminate in a sabbatical year known as Shemitah, literally, to release. At the conclusion of seven Shemitah cycles, the 50th year is referred to as Javel, the Jubilee. The observance of Shemitah had several dimensions. For example, during the Shemitah year, the residents of Israel were prohibited from cultivating their fields, and certain types of slaves were offered their freedom. Simply put, the Shemitah year prohibited a lender from collecting on outstanding debts owed by his fellow citizens. The Jubilee is akin to a super Shemitah. In the Jubilee year, all debts were canceled, including those owed by non-citizens. Further, in the Jubilee year, all slaves were set free, even those who elected to stay through a prior Shemitah period. Finally, all land in Israel was returned to its original owner. As a result of this provision, the land of Israel, provided certain conditions exist, could not be sold outright. Rather, it was rented for a period of years with the term and price determined by the years remaining until the next jubilee. Now, here we come to the U.S., the United States bankruptcy laws. Several concepts, including reaffirmation of debt, the difference between personal and commercial indebtedness, and a lender's right to retain collateral, appear first in the rules of Shemitah and Yovel and have since been incorporated into the bankruptcy laws of the U.S., including the Bankruptcy Code, the Code, 
which was adopted in 1978. In general, the code made it easier for both businesses and individuals to file bankruptcy and reorganize. The code was a major piece of legislation that started a number of legal controversies, and many amendments and judicial clarifications of the code were effected in the first several years after its adoption. One key event was the 1982 Supreme Court Marathon Pipeline ruling that the bankruptcy court's enlarged jurisdiction, which had been established by the 1978 Act, was unconstitutional. This decision led to amendments of the code in 1984. Other changes in 1984 limited the right of companies to terminate labor contracts. Most recently, in response to COVID-19, Congress increased the debt limits for eligibility under the new Subchapter 5 that streamlined the process for smaller companies. Now a question. Is a jubilee the answer? The advent of COVID-19 and the related economic turbulence may lead some to wonder whether a debt jubilee would be the answer to our woes, a providential gift. From a strictly economic perspective, the answer is likely to be no. Arguably, however, targeted debt forgiveness, or at least a more lenient and well-structured bankruptcy system with a larger debt forgiveness component may be appropriate in particularly acute cases. For further information, please contact any number of Taft's Distressed Companies Task Force members. So I bring this to your attention in part because I find it interesting. We've been talking about the year of Jubilee. We've been talking about Shemitah. We've been talking about this whole idea of applying the Bible to our economic issues, our social issues, our political issues. And it's interesting to me that we find traces like in the case of bankruptcy law, we find traces of this Judeo-Christian influence, this regard for the Bible, this high view of the Word of God, and in some sense, tradition, that's a conservative priority. And perhaps we have not gone far enough in implementing some of these things in the United States. And perhaps what we're seeing with the agitation of communists and socialists and the radical left the rise of bigger and bigger government that shows more and more partiality. In fact, it thinks partiality is a feature, not a bug, in order to social engineer, in order to create conditions that are supposedly going to be more just, more equitable, more diverse. Perhaps part of why we are so susceptible to partiality and inequality is because we have not studied the scriptures. We have not applied these things in a practical way. We take them in a metaphorical sense. We take them in a psychological sense. We take them in a spiritual sense, but we don't think long and hard enough about the practical ramifications. How different would American society be in the coming years and decades if we implemented more of the biblical precedent, the biblical principle inherent to these seven-year cycles and every seventh seven-year cycle. How different would our society be? How different would our culture be if we studied this further and applied it more diligently? I think it would be better. I think we would be better for it. I think it would be good. And I think that the principal thing preventing it is 
that some people have become very, very, very wealthy off of bribes and the showing of partiality. And at the same time, they sometimes feel guilty. And so they also bankroll people who are agitating for communism. A similar thing happened in Russia with the serfs. And if we don't find something better, in the absence of a better idea, it's likely to happen here that the communists will take over and they will just say, nobody has any private property. Well, that's not God's prescription. That's not God's command. That's not justice according to God, that nobody has property. Private property is affirmed by God, even just in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. How do you steal if nobody owns anything? Theft implies and requires and necessitates that there is such a thing as someone else's property, not yours. And the communist doesn't believe that. They don't agree with that. We should agree with that. Now, what may throw some of us for a loop because we haven't thought deeply about it is that private property has its limitations as well. And for that matter, when somebody owns quite a lot of private property, we can wrongly infer from that that they are therefore wiser and more just and more righteous until we find some reason to believe otherwise. Just like other people might say, I presume a poor man is righteous and just. That's why he doesn't own anything. We might presume that when somebody owns quite a lot of property or they are the money lender, they are the financier, they really are the ones who should be judging. But that's not what I read. That, that's not what I read in Deuteronomy 16. I don't see, let's have the appointed judges be whoever owns the most slaves, whoever has loaned the most at interest to his countrymen and become fabulously rich, fabulously wealthy as a result. What I see is a stable pattern, a stable cycle that calls on the whole community, all of the people in the town or the city to judge rightly with justice, actual justice, not the Marxist view of justice, but God's justice, biblical justice. Judge rightly if someone has defrauded or stolen or lied or cheated, rich or poor, native or sojourner, they are accountable to the law. If someone has been abused, regardless of whether they are from around here or from elsewhere, rich or poor, they are protected by the laws, but you also have this idea of land belonging to some people and being passed down from generation to generation and only being rented out. When you think about Egypt again, and you think about how a whole country, except for the priesthood, of course, when you think about a whole country becoming enslaved to the Pharaoh, Pharaoh owning, not just ruling, but owning every man, woman, and child in Egypt, and then embarking to deal with perceived social problems or hypothetical future scenarios that would be problematic through a kind of selective breeding program with regards to people. You look at that and 
It should persuade you that it's possible, (laughs) it is at least plausible that a similar kind of thing has happened to other places. And, oh, by the way, maybe we should consider whether it's happened here, whether it is happening here. I would say it has happened here. It is happening here. A lot of compulsory schooling, activism about a century ago, a lot of the eugenics movement about a century ago came from this place of certain men being like Pharaoh, thinking that they own all of the men, women, and children in the country, and then proceeding to decide which of them are fit to produce after themselves what kind of an education, or should we say, perhaps schooling is not education. There's a thought. What kind of schooling, what kind of training to get skills should they be subjected to, to get obedience? Why? Because they're not regarded as equally deciders of their own fate. They're regarded as something like property. And the socialist will say, yes, we see that, right? Ask a socialist, ask a communist. They will say, aha, yes, yes, that's the thing, right? And a conservative who is not always thinking carefully enough about what we're conserving and why we're conserving it may miss these sorts of things because communism is a terrible satanic idea straight from the pit of hell. I think straight from the mind of Satan himself and Marx was just a instrument. But the conservative in this country has perhaps for too long heard the radical left pointing to these problems and then offering terrible solutions and for too long has said, well, the solutions are terrible and awful and horrible and no good and rotten and evil. And therefore, we're going to dismiss that these problems are problems. Now, not all do that, to be clear. But even those who admit, yes, some of these are problems, will either say nothing can be done about it, or the best thing that can be done about it is to do what we had been doing prior to this or that or the other legislation. But note that the prescription in Deuteronomy 16 and 15 is not just unbridled free market capitalism. A free market is great, but it's not enough because you will have cycles of boom and bust in individual economies, home economies, private lives. You will have some who are affected differently. And yes, you will have cases where bad choices were made, poor choices were made. But at this point in an American context, it's difficult to tell where the individual choice begins and where the unintended consequences of welfare programs and social engineering and monetary policy begin. It's not really so much a question of which is the cause which has contributed, but in some sense, it's all of the above and all at the same time and at a certain point, maybe we do well to just say, okay, you know what? Hey, 430 years of hard bondage. If you were a conservative coming out of 430 years of hard bondage in Egypt, your idea of conserving might've been, (laughs) let's go back to Egypt, right? At a certain point, maybe what we say is, Lord, forgive us and give us wisdom And help us to do something better than this because this is not working so well. Don't throw everything out. Don't change absolutely everything. But let's 
reassess, let's reevaluate certain things. As a conservative myself, I would love to see a campaign against partiality across the board. I would love to see a comprehensive purging of partiality, whether partiality towards the poor, where we let them get away with murder and we say it's society's fault, or it's partiality towards the rich and we let them get away with murder and we say, well, that's just the cost of business. I would love to see us rethink how partial our system is with all of its penalties and incentives and all of its nudge theory and all of its social justice and all of the welfare programs. Something much better than a welfare system would be these Shemitah cycles and a year of Jubilee. But then other things have to be put in place before you could do that. And I'll talk more about what I think would have to be in place as we go along here. But for right now, let's move on. Speaking of Pharaoh and social engineering, let's move on to our next story. Kamala Harris declares U.S. must reduce population to combat climate change in yet another gaffe. Paul Saka reports for TheBlaze.com. I don't know if you'll believe me if you haven't seen this yet, if you haven't heard it yet. So I'm going to play the audio for you. I will play for you cut one. And I want you to take a listen in her own words. Here is Kamala Harris laying out a more comprehensive approach to environmentalism. When we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population, more of our children can breathe clean air and drink clean water. Okay, so there you go. Chew on that. You might, if you were feeling very generous, say she didn't mean to say reduce population. She meant to say reduce pollution, if you're feeling generous. But it's actually very much of a piece with the environmentalist movement to say, let's reduce the population of the planet. It's not for no reason that the folks on the left who support Planned Parenthood, who demand legal abortions be subsidized by the taxpayer, it's not for no reason that they would talk about reducing population. In fact, Marx talked quite a lot. Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto talked a lot about so-called surplus population. What did the communists do with surplus population in Russia and China? Well, they rounded them up in many cases, or they starved them to death, sent them off to work camps, shot them. They killed them uh, in some. Surplus population, you just don't sustain them. And if you control the access to the food and the water and public lands and electricity and housing, if you control access to all of that, when you regard some people as surplus population, you just don't allow them to have what it takes to live. And then they just die. Or maybe you do the assisted suicide thing and you talk people into offing themselves because the surplus population will recognize at a certain point that they don't need to be here. They shouldn't be here. We don't need them. We don't want them. And they will submit. This is the or else. I don't think we're going to go back to an older idea of American conservatism anytime real soon. 
without innovating, without changing some things up, without first answering and addressing these problems that the leftists keep bringing up. And we're going to have to, yes, dismantle their solutions because their solutions in many cases are indistinguishable from the problems they say they're trying to solve. It's like the gift that keeps on giving when your solutions create other problems for you to then solve. That's a sustainable business model, especially if you're making money on both ends and you stay in political power no matter what. But conservatives are going to have to be able to think outside the box about how to answer this idea of reducing population to save the environment. If the box has been, we just say, I have private property, it's my decision, what I do as far as buying a vehicle, buying a home, where my electricity comes from, good luck, right? You're going to have to have something more to go on, say, for instance, as to a moral case for the injustice of taking what you have to give to somebody else. You can't just match their energy, their negative emotions with your negative emotions and whoever has the most negative emotions wins. That also has been tried before and it didn't work. It failed. If we would respond to these bad ideas from the likes of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, we have to have a better origin story than evolution by natural selection, survival of the fittest. The social Darwinists, who very often make up the donor class, otherwise will say, at a certain point, survival of the fittest means letting bad things happen to the rank-and-file conservative voters, Republican voters, if that serves the greater good. There is quite a lot of partiality in the Republican Party, and that has to be addressed if we're going to have a hope even a prayer of responding to these kinds of schemes. But that is to say also, if this scares you, if it makes you uncomfortable, if it concerns you, the idea that Kamala Harris would be saying either accidentally or on purpose, we need to reduce population. If that concerns you, I would encourage you to have a sound reason biblically going back to God's word, for why it's a good thing for us to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. What God has to say about that being a good thing, that being a vision of the good life or part of a vision of the good life, part of our purpose in the first place as human beings. Also too, I would encourage you, if you want some wisdom, look to God's word for how to predict what these sorts of people are capable of if they reject the authority of God if they hate God, if they hate God's word, what are they capable of? If you know what typically follows after, absent the fear of the Lord, when people start talking in positions of a power or at least prominence like Kamala Harris has, what follows after these kinds of talking points? If you look to God's word as a guide, you might just be able to mount a better defense and persuade more of your countrymen. And yes, maybe even at a certain point, some of the donor class, even if they're still social Darwinists, you might be able to appeal to the better angels of their nature to put a stop to this and to put people who are going to protect children because that's who these folks are targeting. They're targeting children right now 
I believe because they want to reduce population and also because they're sexual deviants, but they want to reduce population by convincing as many young people as possible to lose respect for heterosexual marriage, monogamous marriage, so that they don't get married and have kids themselves, talk them into taking drugs that will sterilize them because it's been decided that they should not reproduce because we want to reduce population, talk these kids into changing their pronouns because that will lead to gender reassignment surgery that sterilizes them or taking puberty blockers, which will sterilize them. This is the eugenics program part two. This is the remix. They didn't give up on these ideas. They just changed up the verbiage. They changed up what they call it and how they try to go about implementing it. And oh, by the way, this is why we homeschool. And oh, by the way, speaking of needing to have a practical understanding of the things we read about in the Bible, as well as a spiritual and psychological understanding, not either or, but both and. Here is cut two, thanks to Ian Miles Chung, thanks to Not the Bee Staff. Here is cut two of Jeffrey, openly for all the internet to see and hear, trying to groom children, trying to get kids away from their parents to have conversations about what I was just talking about. Here it is. Cut two. Take a listen. I want to talk to the kids. Parents, watch the video and then hand the phone over to the young kids. Hi there. Um, I get asked a lot, are you a boy or a girl? And I love that question. And so I wanted to just tell you, sometimes human beings are more than boy or girl. Sometimes we're something else. Sometimes we're both. Sometimes um, we kind of float in between. And sometimes we're a boy. Sometimes we're a girl. Um, Because human beings are creatures, and we're wild and exciting. But I want to ask you a favor. If you see a kid like me, or an adult like me, would you be extra nice to them? Would you do me a favor and be very, very kind? Um, Yeah, like anybody, we can feel lonely. And so if you're kind to us, it would be really, really important. Okay. So that right there, right? That is evil. It's evil. And no, no, I'm not going to hand the phone to my child because you are a predator. You are. You're a predator. And what you just said about sometimes people aren't boys or girls. Sometimes they're both. Sometimes they're neither. There's something demonic going on with you. And no, I don't think that it's just psychological. I don't think that this is just that you are mentally ill. No, I don't believe that you are a victim. I don't accept that. I think there's something demonic to you wanting to reach out to kids online and probably not just online. If you're as bold as this to do it for all to see, this is part of this larger push by the radical left because they hate God and they hate the commands of God. They hate the promises of God. They hate the requirements of God. They hate his prohibitions and they hate his positive commands as well. They hate it all and they hate children, even though they would claim that they are trying to look out for the kids. No, they're not truthful. They're liars. Just like this guy is lying about the most fundamental 
basics of his identity, whether he's male or female, he is male, but he's got makeup on and he's dressed like a lady and he's got the earrings in like he's a lady and he's speaking and gesturing in a very feminine way. And it's a lie, right? Just like you're lying about whether you're a man or a woman, you're also lying about whether you care about these kids. You're preying on these kids. You're a predator. This is demonic. The political left, the cultural left, is pushing this to the fore because it's very compatible. It's very conducive. And they'll abandon it. Once it's run its course and it's no longer useful, and if they need to change up their tactics because we put a stop to it here, they'll change it up. But their larger aims, their more foundational presuppositional aims, aren't just atheistic. And they don't just try to hijack biblical language every now and then when they have to, when they're speaking with a group that they want to seduce into voting for them. Satan twists scripture too. It's not just atheistic, it's satanic. Communism is not just atheistic, it's satanic. This is satanic. And it is important to consider the economic situation in proximity to somebody like this trying to talk to your kids. In the schools, for instance, online, for instance, in the community, for instance, the economic reality is such for a lot of American parents that they so badly want to get their kids out of the reach of creeps like this. And what do they say again and again? We can't afford to. And so at a certain point, we have to pay attention to the dollars and cents, bottom line, budgetary constraints that make it feasible for mom to stay home and homeschool the kids. For those kids and mom and dad all to be living in self-sufficiency, dependent on no one except for dad. The husband and the father is supposed to be the provider. When our economic reality is a rigged system to promote social justice or social engineering or social Darwinism or socialism, it does matter. It should matter to the Christian, just like it does matter to God in Deuteronomy 15 and 16 how slaves are treated, how money is borrowed and lent, and how debts are discharged or repaid. It does matter to God in the context of the biblical narrative. It should matter to us, particularly if we have standing, if we have a voice to be able to weigh in. Personally, I look at this video, I listen to this audio here, and I think, man alive, We need to get help to husbands and fathers to be able to rescue their children from predators like this. And this is, oh, by the way, not coincidentally, why The Sound of Freedom, this movie that just beat the latest Indiana Jones flick that was big budget from Disney, playing on twice as many screens in the U.S. This is why The Sound of Freedom has been under attack and the corporate media, and the left has been trying to make it go away. They've been trying to shush it. They've been trying to downplay it or marginalize or smear it as being a conspiracy theory, even though it's a fact that kids are being abducted, kids are being trafficked, kids are being abused. 
But it's not just a fact behind the scenes. It's also a fact out in the open, in public schools, in public libraries. It's a fact that people with a lot of money and power think that this is okay. And actually, they think that the only thing that's not okay is when you tell them, you can't do that. Stop. Ooh, they don't like being told no. They do not like... They do not like being told no. And actually, as a matter of fact, you know how partial our system is, how long it's been partial based on how unaccustomed these folks are to being cross-examined or contradicted or opposed. How prickly they are tells you how long it's been since someone really stood up to them and said, that's enough. You can't do that. I won't let you do that. But that is to say as well, We have some idea of how long justice has been perverted if these folks are so unaccustomed to being told, no, that's wrong. That's not true. That's evil. Repent. Speaking of cross-examination, let's talk about Peter Heck commenting over at Now the Bee about Tucker Carlson and The Blaze doing Republican primary right I'm going to read for you some of Peter Heck's commentary, and then I have some thoughts as well. Peter Heck writes, I'm convinced. I was skeptical at first, but I'm convinced that what Blaze Media just conducted was the direction Republican campaigns need to demand the primary season take. It is conventional wisdom that serious candidates need to participate in serious debates hosted by serious journalists on the serious networks. It's been a one-sided joke and biased clown show for years. Imagine if there existed a cultural expectation that Democrat candidates participate in debates hosted by moderators like Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Eric Erickson, Glenn Beck, Ben Shapiro, and Matt Walsh. As entertaining as that might be for conservatives, you can hear the laments and dirges echoing across the American left. Those weren't moderators. They were opponents. The moderators made themselves the story. The moderators didn't put the candidates on a level playing field where they could showcase their ideas. The moderators tried to embarrass and humiliate them. But that's exactly what the Republican Party has willingly subjected its candidates to for decades on end. And even though Walter Cronkite, Eleanor Crift, and Gwen Ithill of years past were notorious liberals, the increasing polarization of our current political dialogue, undoubtedly fueled and driven by Social media soundbite culture has greatly exacerbated the issue. Who can forget Candy Crowley's inappropriate shilling for President Obama when Republican challenger Mitt Romney had him on the ropes regarding the Benghazi debacle? Romney, I think it's interesting. The president just said something which which is that on the day after the attack, he went into the Rose Garden and said that this was an act of terror. Obama, that's what I said. Romney, you said in the Rose Garden the day after the attack, it was an act of terror It was not a spontaneous demonstration. Is that what you're saying? Obama, please proceed, Governor. Romney, I want to make sure we get that for the record because it took the president 14 days before he called the attack in Benghazi an act of terror. Obama, get the transcript. Crowley, it, 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 he did in fact, sir, call it an act of terror. Obama, can you say that a little louder, Candy? It was a tag team. Never mind that Romney was right and that Crowley made a mistake. Never mind that Obama's UN ambassador, Susan Rice, was on all five Sunday morning news programs just five days after Obama's Rose Garden speech, making the very claim Romney had noted. Rice, quote, 
This was not a pre-planned, premeditated attack, end quote. Or more recently, Chris Wallace moderated, quote unquote, the first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and ran disinformation interference for Biden relative to what we now know was a legitimate story the media wanted buried to help their fellow Democrat. Biden, my son, like a lot of people, like a lot of people we know at home, had a drug problem. He's overtaken it. He's he's fixed it. He's worked on it. And I'm proud of him. I'm proud of my son, Trump. But why was he given tens of millions of dollars? Wallace, all right. Biden, he wasn't given tens of millions of dollars. Trump, he was given tens of millions of dollars. Biden, that was totally discredited. Wallace, President Trump, President Trump, we've already been through this. Biden, totally discredited. Wallace, we've already been through this. I think the American people would rather hear about more substantial subjects. Biden, so do I. Trump, unintelligible. Wallace, well, as the moderator, sir, I'm going to make a judgment call here. Trump, I know, but when somebody gets three and a half million dollars from the mayor of Moscow, Biden, that is not true. That report is totally discredited. Trump, why did he get it? Biden, Mitt Romney on that committee said it wasn't worth taxpayers' money. That report was written for political reason. Wallace, I'd like to talk about climate change. (laughs) The point being, right? And there's a little bit more to Peter Heck's article here. But the point being, we see partiality. You're in, you're out. We see it every time we turn on the news. We see it every time there is a debate. We see it in headline after headline. There is partiality all over the place in the way that the media covers things, in the way that social media censors, in the way that laws are written and enforced, and interpreted. We see it in the way that programs are conceived of and rolled out. At a certain point, we need to stop just accepting that partiality is politics. No, no. Partiality is injustice. Politics is the business of making decisions together. Partiality, coming to characterize our political system, our political parties, our political processes, our government, that's injustice. That is injustice. Partiality and godlessness go hand in hand. And at a certain point, we're going to have to have the second come to examine the first to state his case without moderators who are partial to one or the other party. At a certain point, Peter Heck is absolutely right. We're going to have to have impartiality in the debate process so that we can have impartiality Hopefully, hopefully, in the voting process and in subsequently the governing process. Next up, let's talk about some commentary Megan Kelly had regarding the town hall Friday and who she believes was the winner of this Iowa forum that Tucker Carlson was asking questions at. Who does she think, who does Megyn Kelly think was the winner? Here she is in her own words. Take a listen. What was your take on the town hall? Which of the candidates stood out the most to you? Uh, I thought that was the best I've seen Ron DeSantis. I think DeSantis is starting to find his groove. He's getting better at this. It was the best he's done on Ukraine and a number of other issues. Um, I thought Asa Hutchinson is, you know, he he never was started, but he's done. That answer on the trans issue, he's done. 
Um, Tim Scott, such a likable guy. Nikki Haley, very competent, very savvy. You know, both of them had the same polling problem, and it didn't change yesterday. Vivek, likable, but mm, I don't know. I think he's trying to inspire, but I, my own, I mean, I like him. I hate to, but I think he's falling flat on the inspirational front, even though that's his main game. So I thought it was a DeSantis win. That's really interesting because my next question for you was going to be, I'm hearing all over the place that Vivek is the standout, Vivek is the best, and the DeSantis campaign is failing. What are your thoughts on that narrative? Not based on yesterday. I mean, I think the larger narrative is that DeSantis has stalled, right? But it is relatively early, and he's got $150 million in his war chest. So it's too early to pronounce his campaign over. It, having said that, it hasn't been gangbusters. You know, he got sort of a false start with that Twitter spaces thing. Mm -hmm. And he's not a natural retail politician. But if you watch the guy enough... I think eventually he, he will win you over. He's a little nerdy. Um, he doesn't have Trump's charisma, but he's a smart, technocratic, get-her-done kind of guy. And I really think the number one thing he needs to do is get himself in front of adversarial liberal media and fight. That will send it. Look what happened with Carrie Lake, yeah. who, with respect to Carrie, doesn't have one-tenth of his accomplishments, um, at least in the legislative field or in Republican politics. And so if he could just get in front of these, you know, go on MBC, MSNBC. That's what I would tell him to do. MSNBC, that's your top yeah, choice? Do it or, yeah. or meet the press. I mean, okay. any show on CNN, you know, everybody is left-wing other than sort of Fox and digital media. So <laughs> take your pick. But he should get out there and fight. All right. Um, that was, I was going to ask you which network should, he should go on. MSNBC is probably the best one. I mean, why not just go for it? Like, go on Joy Reid. <gasps> <laughs> what about The View? Oh, that would actually be spectacular. I would be Insufferable. Sure. I mean, they're just, I, who, who can watch them? I mean, you'd have to do it if he were on there, but it'd be a tough, tough nut to crack. <laughs> anyway, he should do something or all of it. He needs to do something to change the trajectory. And, um, you know, what, what do people love about Trump? He's combative. He never backs down. He gets in your face. DeSantis has that, too. He just hasn't been putting himself in the situations where he could show it. And I think she's right. I think that's good advice. I think the questioning from Mary Margaret Olahan to Megyn Kelly, that's good advice. That's good input. And it would help immensely if Ron DeSantis got out there with some adversarial folks other than Republicans. I think that would be better. Uh, as Trump has somewhat cozied up to some left-leaning media sources to try and attack DeSantis by moving farther to the left, more to the center, and DeSantis is playing a move right campaign, I think it would be good for him to engage with the left directly and to sit down for some interviews. And I agree as well, if you listen to the guy, if you pay more attention to what he's accomplished in Florida and what he's actually saying and the substance of his positions and the track record, it's not all just talking points and ideas. It's been tried. Lots of people are voting with their feet to move to Florida because of his leadership, not in spite of it, but because of it, not because of the weather either, by the way. I personally wouldn't move to Florida for the weather. My mom's from there. I've been there several times because I've got family there. It's muggy. It's humid. There are hurricanes. It's not my favorite. <laughs> uh, people are moving there because of his leadership, because of his policies, because of 
his stance on things, his stance through COVID, his stance post-COVID is correctly identifying the problems that are coming down the pike and that are here and how to fight them is, in my view, the way that DeSantis has been fighting them with the help of Republicans in the Florida legislature. But it's interesting to do the compare and contrast between what the narrative is and what the reality is. And we have to watch out for that. We have to watch out for the wish casting on the part of the media. They want DeSantis's campaign to stall. They're afraid of him. They want some other long shot, no chance candidate to be the one who has a possibility of getting the nomination, but isn't going to actually be a threat. And we know that the left has done this all over the US, actually in some cases giving money to the people that they thought would be easiest to beat, would have the lowest chance of winning. That has on occasion backfired because they find, oh, wait a second, actually this is resonating with the voters. But in the case of Ron DeSantis, they don't want to try that. They don't want <laughs> they don't want Ron DeSantis to get the nomination. And so they are trying to say, oh, he's stalled out. The Twitter spaces thing, that announcement, I I know people who were not impressed by that at all, even technical difficulties aside, what he said, it sounded like he was reading from a script. One way to get away from that is put him in situations where it's back and forth. It has to be thinking on your feet. And oh, by the way, I think Tucker Carlson's engagement of the candidates in Iowa was a good example of what that can produce. It can bring things out when there is an adversarial interviewer. Tucker Carlson was certainly opposed to Mike Pence wanting to talk all about Ukraine. And boy, howdy, is it helpful for us as the voters to hear Mike Pence say, that's not my concern. I'm running for president of the United States. And therefore, we need to do more for Ukraine. Wait, what? I thought you were running for president of the United States, not president of Ukraine. What? Did I miss something? Well, just like you can have helpful info come out during an adversarial interview on the conservative side of things or on the Republican side of things, you can have helpful things come out. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. The second who comes and examines the first to state his case who seems correct, might just prove that the first to state his case was correct, as a matter of fact. That's another way to read that proverb. And I think it would be found out if the second who came to examine Ron DeSantis was a hostile person on the left who favors the progressive agenda, who favors the globalist agenda. I think it would bear out that he is correct. He doesn't just seem correct. He is correct. Hopefully, he takes that advice. Hopefully, he takes Megyn Kelly's advice here because it's good advice. In other news, consider a report from Carlos Garcia over at TheBlaze.com from July 14th. Hiker finds mummified remains of three bodies at remote campsite in the Rocky Mountains, police say. Seeing as how this happened in Colorado... I find it especially interesting. Gunnison County Undersheriff Josh Ash said that the hiker saw one body at the campsite just before 
5 p.m. on Sunday, and authorities were able to find two others when they arrived on Monday, just after 8 a.m. The three badly decomposed bodies were found at a makeshift campsite about 1,000 feet away from the Gold Creek campground. Investigators said the manner in which the bodies were discovered led them to believe no foul play was involved. There were no signs of violence and no weapons found. Two of the bodies were found inside a small, zipped-up tent, while the third body was found outside, said Gunnison County Sheriff Adam Murdy. He added that the camp was at a place where hikers don't usually go. Ash said they found sleeping bags and water purification tools in the tent. The bodies have been removed from the campsite and sent to the medical examiner's office, who will determine the causes and manners of death of the three people. Whether they froze to death in the winter or the combination of starved or froze, that's what it sure seems like, he explained. This is not a typical occurrence anywhere by any means, Murdy added. Now, part of why I bring it up is this is Colorado. I live in Colorado. I find it interesting. You have people going out to camp and perhaps being surprised, perhaps not being adequately prepared and perishing. A thousand feet is not very far from a campsite. Maybe they were snowed in and maybe that's what happened. But I bring it up because I think that people being able to have adequate housing is a big deal. People being able to have a home to live in is maybe not at issue here. I don't know. I don't know if these were homeless folks or if they were well off and this was a vacation or this was some kind of wilderness surviving, which that would be tragically ironic, not at all funny. But there are people increasingly in Colorado, if you go into Denver, if you drive around Greeley, there are people who are pitching tents out in the elements. It would seem not for recreational purposes. They are homeless. They do not have a home. They don't rent anywhere. And how did they get there? What's driving that? What's the cause? Obviously, there's poverty, but what's driving the poverty? Is the poverty due to bad choices or mental illness or substance abuse? Is it a spiritual condition? Is it a social issue? Is it lack of education? Was there some traumatic experience? Were they injured? Did they have an accident and they weren't able to work or they just went off the deep end? There are so many factors to consider. But these three who were just found at a campsite in the Rocky Mountains, these three have their equivalent among those who are homeless. And it is supposed to be a priority for us to consider what factors into someone not having a home, being exposed to the elements, particularly if they are going to perish as a result. If they would die from exposure to the elements, say for instance in the winter, or if they would die because they don't have adequate food, when we know about it or if we see the kind of trouble that creates those conditions or exacerbates those conditions coming, and there's no defense for it, there's no excuse for it, why would we hide ourselves? Why would we say that that's none of our concern? Why would we say that that's none of our business, particularly if some of the things that are being pushed for 
have a global ambition. How does that not become our business? And if it will become our business because the ambitions are global in nature, then I would say it's our business right now. It's very much my business as somebody who works in oil and gas, for instance, if certain people, very wealthy, very well-connected, very influential, want to shut down my whole industry, my ability to earn a living and provide for my family. But even besides that, it's relevant to me and my family, my household, if we have a partial justice, if we have a social justice that is global in nature, that looks at my earning anything more than the average, not just in my state or in my country, but around the world, and says, that's a problem. If you're making more than other people, that's a problem. You must have taken from the have-nots. Well, wait a second. Hold on. Hold on, Karl Marx Jr. It's a different kind of Karl's Jr. Not nearly as delicious. Hold on. I'm not oppressing anybody working to provide for my family. And also, oh, by the way, if you don't want to create more poor people, more homeless people, more hungry people, more miserable people, if you don't want to create more of the very problem you say you're trying to solve, how about let's look at what factors go into helping to generate prosperity and abundance? And oh, by the way, what about the idea of there being on the one hand, a respect for private property. People do own private property and you would not take it away from them just because they have private property. You wouldn't abolish private property just because some people have a lot more of it than others. But then on the flip side, what if we did take a look at a year of Jubilee and what if it was of a piece with impartiality, doing justice, having judges more than aristocrats, as I was talking in the previous episode about a letter from John Adams to John Taylor in 1819, John Adams defined an aristocrat as not just the best men, the best man in the classical Greek sense, but any man who commands two votes, one other besides his own. That is, he's influential. He persuades others or he speaks for them as their representative. That's what an aristocrat is. Not just having aristocrats We need to have judges who judge with right judgment. That's what we need. Judges who do justice and only justice. That's all they do. And with that, not instead of it, but with that, we need to take a look at the borrowing and the lending dynamics and whether some have for quite some time made themselves very, very wealthy, charging entirely too much interest, and creating slaves, which, barring bankruptcy relief, are not released, are not set free. Their earnings, their fruit of their labors, go to others. And as the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And if the political process is dictated by those who have gotten very wealthy, they have the money to donate to who they believe will represent their interests and maintain the status quo, or at least not challenge it along certain lines, we find at every turn the potential for corruption, the potential for the worst men, as John Adams also said in his letter from 1819. The worst men, not the best men, governing. For our next story, though, and on a related note, 
I would draw your attention to a piece by Brett French, July 14th, in the Billings Gazette. BLM director says agency has been directed to implement corner crossing. The backstory here is that a chief U.S. district judge named Scott Skovdahl dismissed ranch owner Frederick Eshelman's lawsuit that sought $7 million in damages from four Missouri hunters who climbed over fences at a corner in Wyoming in 2020 and 2021 to hunt on public land. Eshelman has filed notice that he will appeal the ruling, quote, by insisting that corner crossing was trespassing, Eshelman essentially had exclusive access to some 6,000 acres of public land for his own hunting and other excursions, wyofile.com reported. Following the judge's ruling, Montana Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks issued a press release saying that corner crossing is, quote, unlawful, end quote, in Montana, and that anyone attempting to corner cross should ask permission from adjoining landowners. A University of Montana law professor questioned the basis for FWP's claim, referring to established case law. Now, a quick note on this. As we go back up into the article, that was a ways down, several paragraphs. If we go up and we read this fourth, we find some interesting food for thought in relation to the rest of what we've been talking about. To quote French's article, Her response to a question about the corner crossing case is relevant because the BLM oversees management of 70% of the 8.3 million acres on X maps has identified as public lands corner locked or only accessible by stepping from one corner of public land to the other. The other largest chunk of corner locked public lands belong to states, which on X maps calculated at 26%. Now just understand 8.3 million acres are corner locked and said to be either public lands managed by BLM or public lands that belong to the states. Might I suggest that 8.3 million acres should be offered up to the public or those who have that acreage within and surrounded by their lands should either have to purchase those lands or else allow them to be sold or given, what would be better in my view, given to young families in the U.S. I think something like the Homestead Act would be very wise and we should encourage that as a solution, one, to the problem of overcrowding in the cities, two, the problem of unaffordable housing, the amount of a person's income on average that goes to paying rent in this country. It's ridiculous. You would see rents go down in this country if more public lands in the West were actually transferred to private ownership. And by that, I don't mean give first dibs to the landowners who already own huge tracts of land. I mean, if they are really public lands, open them up for settling by young families in particular. People who have been renting 
in perpetuity and can't afford to buy homes. And here's an idea. With those public lands, try out some new techniques for building homes and building communities. Make it affordable. Make it make sense. We should have a way of making these regions accessible to people who want to live, who want to raise families, who want to farm, who want to ranch, who want to have gardens and raise chickens and cows and the rest. We should have ways of opening up these lands to reduce crowding, to lower the cost of living for young people, to encourage young people to get married and have children. Otherwise, what's the point, right? What's the point of 8.3 million acres, particularly if you can have claims made that it's trespassing to access those public lands because they can only be accessed through somebody else's private property? Well, in that case, it would seem as though they're not actually public lands. Public means public. But if they're not going to be public lands, if they're going to be treated like private lands or for all intents and purposes, only available to private persons anyways, then you might as well actually just go the whole way in an impartial way and make it possible for families to settle these parts of the country just as it was a century and some change ago. I think that was a good idea. I think it was a much better idea than having very powerful bureaucracies with 10,000 employees managing these things. No, no. How about have 10,000 families? How about 100,000? How about a million, right? What if a million young families were able to settle these lands and make them productive if they want to? They wouldn't be forced to, but if they wanted to, they would be doing their country a service and they would be doing themselves a service. They would be doing the cities that otherwise force them to pay exorbitantly high rents. They would be doing those cities a service. Now, maybe not those who own properties and rent them out for very tidy sums. But my interest is not first and foremost in whether those people's property values stay high. Again, we need to be thinking about partiality here. If the interest is keeping property values high for those who own land or own homes or other kinds of buildings, if the interest is in keeping their property values high by suppressing the construction of or the expansion into available properties, dealing with the supply problem, relative demand, I say that's partiality. If we would suppress the supply of land when there is so much of it out west owned by the federal government and by state governments, if we would say we're not going to open that up for the building of homes and ranches and farms, well, I think that's partiality. I don't think there's any excuse for it. And if you say, well, it's to preserve the environment, I say the folks who tell you that, the folks you're repeating after on that, their big idea for protecting the environment doesn't stop with just keeping those lands closed off to you. Their big idea is, going back to Kamala's comment, to reduce population. They're okay with gender mutilation surgeries on your children, puberty blockers for your children, encouraging homosexuality among your children if that will decrease the population. 
and you want to take them seriously when they say it would be an environmental disaster for you to settle the West? No. No way. Let's switch gears, though, and let's talk about the intellect. Let's talk about what it means to be an intellectual and how welcoming we are as conservatives for those who live the life of the mind, who cultivate their minds, and how, if we are not very welcoming, can we do a better job? First up, let me draw your attention to Merriam-Webster's entry for intellectual. What is an intellectual? What does it mean for something to be intellectual? The first definition, of or relating to the intellect or its use, developed or chiefly guided by the intellect rather than by emotion or experience, requiring use of the intellect. So for instance, intellectual games. Intellectual can be an adjective to describe a thing that pertains to the intellect. Secondarily, intellectual can mean given to study, reflection, and speculation, engaged in activity requiring the creative use of the intellect. When it's a noun, an intellectual is an intellectual person. So that would be a person who is given to speculation, a person who is given to study and reflection. So then what is an intellect? What is this thing that is characterized by the intellect? The intellect is the power of knowing as distinguished from the power to feel and to will, the capacity for knowledge, the capacity for rational or intelligent thought, especially when highly developed, or an intellectual, you might say, is a person with great intellectual powers. They have the capacity, they have the ability, and it's not all just inborn. Maybe there's a certain sense in which capacity is a factor of genetics. Certain people are predisposed to the life of the mind because of who their parents are. But nature and nurture all in the mix, their cultural priorities, cultural values, certainly play an important role. In fact, insofar as we can't control who we're born to, and we have the cards that were dealt, I say, let's key in on the part of what it means to be intellectual or have intellectuals or what to do with intellectuals that pertains to culture and your family's values and your choices, your priorities, the priorities of the community around you. Let's talk about this from the standpoint of incentives or disincentives, rewards and penalties. Growing up in Eastern Montana, let me just start there. I do not think of Eastern Montana as a place that thinks highly of intellectuals. Now, that's not to say that the people of Eastern Montana are stupid, and it's not to say that people in Eastern Montana are uninformed or they don't know what's going on in the broader world. But insofar as the priority in Eastern Montana, for instance, for example, is very often on farming and ranching, so agriculture, or if you work in the railroad part of the economy, or if you work in oil and gas, or if you work on 
something that's adjacent to or supportive of or dependent on those industries, your priority is very often working with your hands. That's the emphasis. That is the necessity, and that is what is valued. That's what's rewarded. That's what's praised. That's what typically is going to be emphasized and incentivized. But the life of the mind is typically associated with folks from not around here who try to come in and tell us what to do. People with the federal government or people with the universities, people on the coasts, or people who own the major corporations, run the major corporations from distant states. Maybe they are more intellectual, but we work with our hands out here. We're the good people. We're the salt of the earth because we work with our hands and that's what we're going to incentivize. That's what we are going to praise. That's what we want more of. We don't want more people who are living inside their heads because people who live inside their heads tend to look down on people who work with their hands. And it shouldn't be so. It shouldn't be that way. It should be the case that you cultivate your mind and also you are willing to roll up your sleeves and do the work that you have set your mind to. It shouldn't be that we separate these things out so much as we do, but I think a lot of it is cultural. That the culture says, if you do something with your hands that's very clever, we're not going to call that intellectual and you really will want to downplay any part of this that was book learning driven because association. You're associating yourself with the wrong sort and you're not going to fit in. Maybe we'll encourage you to move elsewhere, move along and vice versa. Those who live the life of the mind who perhaps possibly start to work with their hands more and identify with the interests of manual laborers, salt-of-the-earth types, if they start to associate themselves with the values and the worldview and the cosmology and the theology of the rural folk, very often in the academy, in bureaucracies, in the higher echelons of corporations, just the reverse. They're told, well, maybe this is not the right place for you. Maybe you should move along. And there's this at-odds quality to those who work with their minds culturally and those who work with their hands culturally. And it's been that way for some time. And some of it maybe isn't cultural. Maybe some of it is, hey, I don't have time for books right now. I need to focus on what I'm doing with my hands. And maybe other times it's a, I don't have time to do this physical task, to learn how to do it right. I would be clumsy at best. I work with my mind. I need to hire somebody else. And maybe that's part of what plays into it as well. But wouldn't it be better if we had folks who work with their hands also cultivating their minds so that they can maintain their liberty, so they can argue their own case, so they can mind their own affairs holistically? And also too, wouldn't it be better if those who live the life of the mind were also capable of minding their own affairs when their own affairs are physical in nature. Wouldn't that be good? Maybe wouldn't that ground the kinds of speculations they engage in, the theoretical work that they engage in? Wouldn't it ground their philosophies, their theology better so that it doesn't become 
foolishness, self-impressed, wise in its own eyes, foolishness at that? I think so. I think a lot of what is broken in our political discourse in this country is the result of social Darwinists pushing for compulsory schooling, thinking of themselves as the fittest of the species, and regarding the rest of their countrymen as so many cattle to be herded. And I think that insofar as our public education system has failed the American people, it has failed both the elites and the common man by encouraging the common man to think of himself in a slavish way and to think of his betters in a slavish way that ultimately breeds resentment, but for their purposes, necessitates dependence and rewards obedience. It's a double-edged sword because the flip side is those people at the very top, insofar as they have given a malnourished life of the mind to those that they regard as beneath them, their inferiors socially, politically, economically, it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy that these people depend on them and also that these people are not capable of making decisions for themselves. They're not capable of coming up with their own fresh ideas, getting things done, staying out of trouble, engaging in these discussions as equals. But it should be the case that both alike, the common people and the elites, would be reminded of passages like Deuteronomy 16 that pertain to justice, that pertain to a periodic leveling of the playing field by the forgiving of debts, for instance. Hypothetically, just think with me for a moment about two men, hypothetical men. One who drops out of high school, gets a job, buys a pickup truck, rents an apartment, meets a young gal, finds her pretty, gets married, they have some kids, he works with his hands, and he is paid what his employer is willing to pay him. If he looks to go somewhere else, the other employers also know what his employer is paying him, and they will offer him about that. So it doesn't really advance his cause. Maybe he changes jobs every now and then anyways, in hopes that he gains important skills, or maybe just sometimes he doesn't like the way he's being talked to or treated by this employer, and he is going to roll the dice and see if he can be treated better now that he has more experience, now that he's learned from a bad situation. He sees if he can get something better, at least in the way of how he's related to working for somebody else. But now this is what it is. That when his car breaks down and he needs to buy another vehicle, he takes out a loan. And because he doesn't have a credit history, he takes it at a higher interest rate. And because he can only be approved for so much based on his income, he buys a cheaper vehicle, which doesn't last, and it's not of the same quality. And oh, by the way, he's still renting. And so he's not building equity. And he has no sense of stake, really, except whatever would be intrinsic, but then materially, he's not building his net worth every month as he puts money into the house. It's all for whoever owns that house or that apartment, everything he puts into it to maintain it or to fix it up or to improve it, or even if all he does is pay the rent. It's all going to the one who owns the property 
And if they own many properties and if they have many such tenants, maybe they don't even have to work independently. And so you have the story of a second man. And the second man is the son of the one who owns the properties like the one rented by the first young man. And this man, he grows up, his father in the home regularly to teach him, to instruct him, to give him individual attention as to the facts of life and how to be independent, how to manage the business well, how to manage these properties well, how to manage the money that comes in well, maximize profits, minimize expenses. And so this second young man, when he comes of age, it's not, will you go to college? It's where are you going to college? And oh, by the way, his father having connections because he has wealth, people want to be his friend. People want to do him favors in hopes that they will also receive favors in turn. This young man is able to get entrance to a good college, a good university, and perhaps possibly there aren't even student loans involved because all of these rents that are drawn in from these properties are able to pay the tuition outright. And so the young man in the second scenario, in the second case, has his degree program paid for as he is pursuing his course of study. He goes to a good school. And so he can focus on his studies. What does his father do? But perhaps even buy him a vehicle as a present to celebrate his graduating high school, to incentivize still more academic studies. And so the young man goes off to school, everything being paid as they go, with a vehicle also paid off because the rents coming in allow for that. So there's no loan on the vehicle. And so the young man goes to college and he gets his four-year degree and perhaps maybe even, depending on his interest, he gets his advanced degree as well. He gets a six-year master's degree and he comes out perhaps with little to no debt and a piece of paper that says he knows things. And a vehicle that is still in good condition because, well, you know, dad didn't want to give him a jalopy. Dad wanted to give him something that was going to last and that wouldn't break down very often. And actually will probably keep on running for quite some time because just like dad wanted him to focus on his college education, his father also wanted him to focus on developing his career. Focus on doing the work, establishing yourself in your employment, whatever it is, building a good reputation, being sociable, going to the events, going to the outings, maybe perhaps even throwing parties at your home so as to impress the bosses and your coworkers, so as to be at the front of the line when there are promotions that come up. Maybe possibly even to get promoted ahead of when you actually should based on your work performance, because you've got potential. Because how could you not be successful having been nurtured and cultivated every step of the way to this point? And then let's suppose that the first man in the first scenario is working at the same company that the second man is working at. But the first man who dropped out of high school, and perhaps there were reasons, right? Perhaps he grew up without a father in the home at all, and his mother got sick, 
or had an injury, an accident, or perhaps inflation was making it harder for her to make ends meet. And so he drops out of high school to go get a job, to bring in money, to at least pay his own expenses because he feels like a drain on his mother and it's creating tension there that she can't provide for him what he's asking for in the way of decent clothing, a decent vehicle, a little bit of fun money to go also out trying to network in his way without guidance, without help walking through who do you want to actually associate with. He's going to need friends. He knows that. He needs to impress somebody just like he sees the successful kids impressing people. But he's clumsy at it. And oh, by the way, without that high school diploma, he's going to take what he can get. And maybe he has an entry-level job at the company still. He works hard. He shows up on time when the vehicle that he bought with whatever he could scrape together and borrow right out of high school. You know, maybe that vehicle four, five, six years on breaks down sometimes when he's on his way to work. And so sometimes he's late to work, which doesn't help him on his annual performance review. And oh, by the way, he's not inviting anybody over. Yeah, he tried that game in his late teen years, trying to network, never got the knack of it. His early 20s, he got burned, hung out with some of the wrong folks and said, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to break away from that. So now he does his own thing, but he shows up late to work sometimes because the car breaks down or because his own wife needs to get to a doctor's appointment and he needs to watch the kid because there's nobody to watch the kid. And so now that's another mark against him when it comes to the performance review that's going to decide whether he gets a raise or gets a promotion. And the son of the guy that he's renting from, meanwhile, gets to cut to the front of the line and works his way up into management. And maybe with his networking, he also gets invited to local political parties and events. And he starts talking with the folks who decide who to fund for some office that is going to be vacated or could be challenged. Now, the guy who's been in there for a while, he just had a scandal or he's not getting it done or he's not responsive. People are tired of him, tired of the excuses, tired of his lack of results. And so maybe this young guy, he's able to run on his higher salary and his extra free time and his connections from school and from his father's business partners and from his new employer and his associates there and the friends that he meets at all the parties he gets invited to, especially if he'll show up in that nice shiny new vehicle. And he's just the sort who should run for office. And once he runs for office, if he's of one political persuasion, maybe he says, you know what we need? We need lower taxes, less regulation. That's his panacea. That's his cure-all. And if he's of the other political persuasion, if he's running with the other party, he says, you know what we need? We need more public housing. We need more welfare programs. And all the while, if he were to sit down with the guy who rents one of his dad's properties, who works for his company, and talk through what he thinks would fix some of these things, they would very quickly find themselves 
at cross purposes and having a difficulty because the guy who's working class, who's renting these properties in perpetuity and locked into it, he's terribly afraid of saying the wrong thing and that coming back to haunt him through some shenanigan with regards to his lease agreement. Or he is afraid of saying something given that this guy, if not directly his supervisor at the company that he works at, probably knows his supervisor, is maybe going to be in a meeting at some point, talk with his supervisor, and you don't want to get on his bad side. You don't want to say the wrong thing, but who knows, right? This guy who's considering running for office, you know, he's asking, hey, what are your priorities? What's important to you? What are your interests? But if this guy who rents from his father and works for his company at a much lower position, at some point says, well, you know what? This is rigged and that is rigged. And this is going to never allow me to be successful. And this has me locked out of the process. And this penalizes me instead of taking into consideration my circumstances or my priorities or my values that would be oh, I don't know, more holistic than just dollars and cents and showing up on time. If the young man with all the advantages, with the excellent degree from the best school, with the little to no debt and the good connections in the community, if he's offended by anything, anything, if anything that the poor young man would suggest would upset the status quo in a way that cost the wealthier man or put at risk everything he believes about himself and how he has succeeded to this point because he's the fittest, because he's the best in breed, guess whose input is not going to make it to the party platform or to the legislative agenda or to the policy that's enacted? Short list. Guess whose ideas for reform are going to fall on deaf ears? And oh, by the way, this is before we even get into talking about the next level up because the second young man's father owns the properties that are being rented out, sent them off to the right schools to get the advanced degree, to come back, to get the high paying job, to make the right connections in the community, to be able to run for office. But if you go up a level, you find that there's another layer of this game and the higher up you go, We're not just talking about people who own houses to rent out, apartments to rent out, who control the hiring and firing and discipline and raises and promotions decisions. We're not just talking about who has the free time to run for political office and win. We're talking about the people who give the money to the campaigns, who do the favors for the folks who decide the winners and the losers of primaries very often. We're talking about the people who own the newspaper or the TV station or the radio station or scaled up media empires, social media corporations. And now, just like the guy who dropped out of high school, bought a jalopy with the money he could scrape together, working a minimum wage job, married his high school sweetheart perhaps, rented an apartment, you know, just like that guy is afraid of stepping on the toes of the son of his landlord and the guy 
who's either his boss two levels up or goes out for beers on Friday nights with his boss or his boss's boss. Well, his boss's boss also has a boss's boss or the company has a corporation that's their biggest client or that corporation has a very wealthy, very, very wealthy owner who owns multiple companies in multiple industries. And in his spare time, he plays God. He's not God, but he plays him on TV. And just like the high school dropout doesn't want to offend middle management, fresh out of college with no debts, that guy, clean cut, who did all that he was told to do to be one of the guys, one of the successful ones in the community, that guy is terrified of upsetting, drawing the negative attention of one of those big fish in the international pond. And so what does he do? Even if he agrees with, even if he sympathizes with the working class man as pertains to reform, he's going to have to keep that to himself. Why? Because the moment he steps out of line, he puts his own job at risk. He puts at risk his father who owns all of these rental properties for being investigated, potentially, possibly, for whether he's abiding by various state and local codes. All of a sudden, maybe possibly their complicated taxes are being audited by the IRS. Maybe possibly media entities are snooping around and looking for anything, anything in the way of dirt that they can use to destroy the capacity for being invited to parties and being invited out for drinks moving forward. And so what happens? They both alike, the first man and the second man, play their parts. They do what's expected of them with some variation, to be sure, behind the scenes, quietly, off the record. And sometimes those variations off the record, privately, have good benefits and sometimes they have very bad benefits. But all the while, what is not open to debate, what is not going to be reformed or campaigned against, what will not be allowed to succeed at the end of the day is a genuine reform because the people at the very, very top must maintain their capacity to play God. And, oh, by the way, they must maintain that they are the fittest. According to Darwin's theory on speciation, they are the fittest. If you reform the whole system with them at the top, whatever comes next, whatever is the new paradigm for success, challenges whether they survive as they see it. Because they believe in a dog-eat-dog world, if they're not the dog that's eating, they're the dog that gets eaten. And so they, believing that they are backed into a corner after a fashion, on the one hand, at risk is their godlike aspirations continuing on in being flattered. And on the other hand, the potential of self-immolation, destruction, being overtaken, killed, and eaten themselves, they act out in many ways to touch those they can touch so as to guarantee they retain the top position. And oh, by the way, just like the middle manager has a network, they have networks at the very top. 
And those networks make deals behind closed doors in smoke-filled rooms. Soft-spoken, yes, but no less sinister. They make deals that potentially destroy untold millions of lives because the more lives affected, whether for ill or for good, by their decisions, the more it reinforces the idea that they are the fittest and they are the closest to God this world has. Because they're godless, they like to believe that they are the closest thing to God in this ecosystem. And so then we come back to this question of the intellectual. I draw your attention to The Power of the Catholic Intellectual Ecosystem by Onzi Aaron Kamel over at AdFontes. Published November 3rd, 2021, web exclusives pertaining to contemporary church. Thank you to my friend Joseph Crampton for sharing this article with me so I can share it with you as well. But consider with me the third section titled The Scandal of the Protestant Intellectual Ecosystem, where Kamel writes, and I quote, but why do I analyze any of this? What is the significance of the existence of these sorts of networks and what is gained by analyzing them? First and foremost, this kind of network is significant precisely because of who possesses it or rather who doesn't. Protestants, for a variety of reasons, including the progressive apostasy of the mainline churches and the subsequent loss of distinctly Protestant Ivy League divinity schools, Protestants lack top-tier academic institutions of our own. Evangelicals run institutions, to be sure, but these are often not up to the intellectual level of their Catholic or secular counterparts. More often, they are several tiers lower, and Protestants today lack robust access to non-Protestant political and cultural outlets. Why is this? There are a couple of reasons, I think. First, not only have Protestants lost the institutions that were formerly home for us, but we also lack robust representation at elite levels in the secular academy. This in turn means there is less distinctly Protestant work to popularize. Because there is less Protestant work to popularize, public intellectuals are not reading Protestants on a regular basis. The void is filled by Catholics. Second, Protestants in elite institutions tend to be in the mainline, and the mainline has very little to say socially and politically that the secular progressive left isn't saying more forcefully, effectively, and cogently elsewhere. For this reason, the Christian voices featured in secular spaces tend to be either Catholic or evangelical, which brings us to a further question. Why aren't conservative evangelicals achieving at the level of their Catholic counterparts? Again, I think there are a couple of reasons. Conservative evangelicals tend to be populist in orientation, suspicious of elite institutions, research, and credentials, and not without some warrant, it should be noted, and populists, it should go without saying, generally have little appetite for expertise or elites or for supporting institutions which sustain an expert class. But evangelicals have also tended to cede cultural ground they view as under threat, retreating to regroup elsewhere in response to their skepticism of expertise or political elites. Conservative Catholics have not retreated into bunkers or silos, forfeiting their places in elite institutions. They have channeled such skepticism into top institutions of American conservatism, like First Things or National Review, or more recently, the American Conservative, as well as into the highest levels of the academy, as represented in the works of figures like Alastair McIntyre or Patrick Deneen. 
By contrast, evangelicals have largely forfeited or wasted such positions, apparently in the belief that such positions are hopelessly tainted, consider regular evangelical sneering at the Ivies, that figures within them are powerless to do anything, consider the disappointing record of Francis Collins as NIH director, or more tragically, because evangelicals, as mirror images of their mainline counterparts, have had little to say that wasn't already being said better by non-evangelical Reaganite neoconservatives, consider the evangelicals active at the bulwark or the dispatch. As an aside, it is worth noting that this populist orientation has generally given evangelicals a distinct advantage in the realms of media and popular outreach using mass market media to connect with the masses. Figures like Billy Graham have few analogs in the Catholic world, and even if Catholicism is in the process of replacing the mainline's former function in elite American culture, evangelicalism has simultaneously come to dominate lowbrow religious popular culture. Catholicism, by contrast, is fundamentally tied to one institution, the Roman Catholic Church, with a fixed hierarchy and established patronage networks, both of which can funnel money into elite institutions for the purpose of cultivating excellence. Now, let's just pause right there for a moment to appreciate that this business of being divided and being lowbrow and being skeptical or avoidant is dealt with in two works, which this is reminding me very much of. One being The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by Mark Knoll. The second being The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by Carl Truman. I like the latter better than the first. And I think a lot of this is just rehashed, remixed Mark Knoll, which I've talked about. I've done reviews of both books and I liked The Real Scandal of the Evangelical Mind much, much better because it correctly points out we don't agree on what the Evangelion is. We don't agree about what the gospel is. We say we want to be unified on the gospel, but we don't agree about what the gospel is or what it means. And so what is being pushed for by groups like the Gospel Coalition, by the Christian bookstores all too often in American evangelicalism for the last century— What's being pushed for is actually the opposite of intellectual speculation. Why do I say that? Because if we were to speculate in a more in-depth way, we would scare people away from the big tent coalition we're trying to form in many cases in the ecumenical movement. If we were to get into specifics and encourage people to be living the life of the mind on other topics besides the gospel, it might as the claim goes, undermine focusing on the gospel. So for instance, with the Welfare of the City project that I am hoping to be involved in, participating in, helping to lead with other men for some time to come, but which we are about to have our first event for, open to the public on August 13th, with regards to the Welfare of the City project, that is one of the objections I anticipate based on my familiarity with these sorts of efforts, the objection will be we need to be focused on evangelism, telling people about Jesus, telling people Jesus died for their sins, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life in obedience to the Father, was arrested, flogged, crucified, died, was buried, rose again on the third day. If you believe in him, your sins can be forgiven. If you 
start talking about other things in a public way, there are people whose emphasis is so highly on evangelism that they will pull you aside or even call you out publicly and say, you should be focused on the gospel. And every instant, every moment, much less if you were to spend hours or days or weeks or months or years or decades of your life trying to think through other things besides just how to have the perfect formulaic gospel presentation. All of that is time you could have been spending, you should have been spending preaching the gospel. And that works for a lot of evangelicals and a lot of ecumenicals in America. That works for them. That's all it takes to either shut them up entirely, either completely demoralize them as pertains to doing these things publicly, though they may still harbor a private interest, or (laughs) if it doesn't shut them up, it cuts off all avenues of support within the church, within the denomination, within the broader community of Christians. If it doesn't shut them up directly, immediately, it attacks their supply lines. And B.H. Liddell Hart would have us know that is a much better tactic than attacking somebody head on. Which is better? Okay. And I've talked about this as well before because it's pertinent, it's relevant. Which is better? When you have an entrenched enemy, opponent, adversary, and you want to remove them from their fortifications, their position that they're trying to defend, the hill that they're willing to die on, which is better to charge them with the machine gun nests and lots of ammunition and risk getting cut to pieces, you and your fellows, whoever all attempts it, or to figure out how they're getting fresh food, fresh water, more ammunition when they run out and to attack that and to block that and to cut off that so that eventually they just don't have any more food coming in and they starve like those hikers found in the Rocky Mountains. Or they're exposed to the elements and they don't have some ability to stay warm. You cut off their electricity, you cut off their communications, they're isolated and you just wait them out. You wait for them to surrender or you attack them surprise attack when they're weakened and depleted from not having supplies. See, that's what happens in American evangelicalism. In my experience, from my perspective, anytime a Christian starts living the life of the mind, if it's not firmly entrenched on supporting and affirming the status quo, but with a gospel presentation, a short, brief, concise, succinct, utterly and absolutely and entirely polite, sprinkled throughout the community every free minute you have to engage the public. And I think this is no small part of why so many Protestants are leaving evangelical churches in the West and they're joining the Roman Catholic Church because the life of the mind is not encouraged in our churches in too many cases. The left maybe in some places presents a pseudo-intellectualism, but then it undermines the mixing in of Christianity, which is what they have to do. They have to mix in Christianity, but the emphasis is on being pseudo-intellectual if they want to support leftism and progressivism. 
And folks who maybe initially graft onto the purpose and the belonging that they find in the evangelical world, if they want answers, if they want to understand better how God's creation works or how to honor Christ in their various spheres, all too often they end up going it alone with no support and actually very often active opposition. And even if they join in on some movement, let's say a populist movement, very often it's superficial. It's not well thought out. It's highly emotional as opposed to being intellectual. I find, if I can be very candid, I find very often that American evangelicalism is very manipulative, even among those who are conservative, as though we're looking for a certain emotional range to remain in, and that's when we know we're close to God. Sometimes that emotional range for the Pentecostals is ecstasy, jubilance, cheerfulness. That's how I know I'm close to God is I feel happy. So of course God would want me to be happy. And so whatever somebody presents to me that would make me happy, if I don't have a sound reason because I haven't studied diligently because we want to be about the gospel after all, so don't read anything else other than the gospel, (laughs) which is odd. If you really understand what the gospel is, it's the Evangelion. It's the good news of the conquest of Christ over sin and death and the nations and all other gods, etc. It's the triumph of the lordship of Christ over all creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all its inhabitants. The evangelical world, when it's more charismatic, Pentecostal, seeker-friendly, emphasizes happiness, positivity, joy. That's the emotional range that you should associate with piety, closeness to God, nearness to God, as long as you state the right doctrines in a rote way. And on the more conservative side, all too often, the more fundamentalist side says, we also want to associate a certain emotional range with piety, but ours is going to be the grave, sober, sad, grieved, maybe even depressed or angry emotional range. And we'll know that we really love God. We really care deeply, comprehensively about the truth of his word if we're in that emotional range. And we'll know that others are too. If others display those emotions, that's what we watch for. That's what we listen for. That's who we like. And so what if they're a jerk? So what if they're abusive? So what if they make logically fallacious arguments and they distort the truth in order to maintain that emotional range because thereby they maintain the support of those who listen and donate and support their organizations. See also J.D. Hall, by the way. So coming back to the Ad Fontes piece by Anzi Aaron Kamel, it is not going to be possible for Protestants for evangelicals, to maintain a good testimony, to maintain good theology, to have healthy and strong homes and local churches. It is not going to be possible for us to have a good theology of work or the environment. It's not going to be possible for us to have good anthropology. It's not going to be possible for us to maintain good doctrine or good practice if we don't 
work on cultivating the life of the mind in our churches and encouraging it and incentivizing it and promoting it and nurturing it, cultivating it. That's a good word, cultivating. We have to cultivate the life of the mind. I would say more emphasis on homeschooling. Don't focus on trying to recapture Ivy League institutions. Don't focus on trying to found colleges and universities. You know what would be better than that? If our churches were more like colleges and universities, so to speak, wherein you have homeschooling families who are supported, who are thanked, who are honored, who are given resources within the churches. You say, hey, you're going to homeschool your kids. Cool. We have a bunch of families that are homeschooling and let's get you connected. If you'd like some advice, if you'd like some ideas, let's get you connected with some of the families in our church who are doing this well, who can help you answer questions about curriculum or about techniques or about challenges, resources, things that they've done, things that they've tried, they get together so often. That's something we should be encouraging more of. Of course, that means reform in the way that we do church. That requires we be willing to disagree, and that's going to be very hard for some people, but it's necessary. It's, in fact, imperative. It's essential. And that's part of why we are launching the Ecclesia Forum on August 13th. That's part of why we are endeavoring with this Welfare of the City project, because we have to, we have to affirm, we have to celebrate the freedom to speak freely, to think deeply, to search the scriptures daily to see whether the things that are being claimed are so, are true, are good, are beautiful. If they are, let's affirm them, let's embody them, let's say them, let's do them, let's come alongside others as they are likewise. It's possible that if we would fall back in love with that, we would find our doctrine is better, our theology is better, our evangelism is more successful. It is possible that we would ruffle feathers, yes, but that's not avoidable. And so our aim should be to ruffle feathers for the right reasons, in the right way, at the right time, on the right points. This is one of them. This is one of them that we must. And oh, by the way, I will chide those who give the most money in many American churches I will chide them for too often neglecting the very real and great opportunity to encourage just these kinds of initiatives in their local church. In too many cases, what does the money go to? It goes to buying the band new instruments. It's great for the band to have new instruments. Fantastic. Wonderful. I love music. I'm helping with music this coming Sunday. I'm actually helping practice music this evening. I'm glad we have Equipment. I'm glad we have a sound system. I'm glad we have people who know how to play instruments and sing and arrange music. That's important. But the people who give a lot of money to churches in America very often prioritize the giving of the money to the music program. Why? Because it helps to engender a certain emotional range that they feel super spiritual when they're in. Or they will give money to housing the pastor, because the pastor who's going to preach the best from the best seminary or the best 
Bible college helps them to have a certain emotional range, and they associate that with nearness to God. And so money is poured into having full-time vocational ministers, having a staff of pastors. And having pastors, that's great. That's wonderful. How seldom are those pastors being encouraged, like clergy ministers in centuries past, to be living the life of the mind more broadly, more comprehensively, and setting the example for their congregation thereby? I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but what I would say is I have never, ever, ever heard of some wealthy member of a local community or a church giving money for the express purpose of helping families in the church to homeschool or to build a library of resources for homeschooling families in their community. There's an idea. I have seen money given to Christian schools, but I haven't seen money given to the church helping to foster home education. I think that's what it needs to go to. Christian schools are, in too many cases, little better, and in some cases, they're worse than the local public schools because they get all the kids, the public schools kicked out, and the parents are still hands-off, but they think that the Christian school is going to turn their poorly behaved child into a saint, and it doesn't work that way. Mom and dad need to be involved, dad especially. Fathers need their dad voices to be engaged. But then that brings us to the last piece. What would be great is if the folks who give money to Christian schools or to having a killer band be able to play with the best sound system for the youth group or for the main services on Sunday. What would be really great is if maybe instead of quite so much of that and quite so fancy of a building, these wealthy donors were sponsoring think tanks of Protestant Christians trying to think through better political theology in a way that's going to transform the local economy so that the dads go out and they make a living wage to support their families, so that the moms are able to stay home and homeschool their kids. And oh, by the way, while you're at it, while you're sponsoring think tanks, you wealthy donors, instead of supporting establishment Republican types, what if you were underwriting and funding resources for homeschooling in your community? Maybe school choice is something that gets through with a DeSantis presidency. I hope so. I would love to see that. School choice, coast to coast, the dollars follow the students where they go. If they're homeschooled, the dollars follow. If they're private school, the dollars follow. If they go to some technical training learning to become an electrician or a plumber or an automation and controls professional, the dollars follow. Great, right? Super. But in the meantime, or supposing that doesn't happen, in the meantime, where are our folks who have the means facilitating more homeschooling in their community and resources, more to the point, resources, church libraries? How about instead of more money to the sound system, the audiovisual equipment. How about more money going to building up church libraries and encouraging, incentivizing, honoring scholars in the church? And I don't mean scholars like go off to this or that prestigious university and toe the party line, whatever 
they want you to say. That's what you say. And whatever they don't want you to say, you don't say it because you'll lose your job or not get tenure or whatever. No, no. I mean, scholars in your community who are studying and researching things, let's honor those folks and say, hey, listen, we need more of this. This is one of the ways you can honor God and love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, strength, mind. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. If we do that, I think we'll stop losing evangelicals to Roman Catholicism. I also think we'll stop losing young people to the woke cult. I think we'll also stop losing elections that should be very easily winnable because establishment candidates were put forward by the Republican Party with no substance, except I'm not a Democrat. I also think we'll stop having conservatives so easily picked off, so isolated, so easily cut off and drowned out and neutralized. Those are my thoughts. Those are my thoughts on this whole question of intellectuals and the need for the life of the mind in American Protestantism, in the American church. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.